Thank you so much for joining us for today's podcast. We'll get started in just a moment. If this is your first time here, please consider subscribing so that you may stay up to date with the latest podcast. And if our podcast brings value to your life, please consider sharing it with family and friends. Thanks for listening. And now here's today's podcast. Thanks for joining us for the Covenant Living Broadcast with Pastor John Butler of Covenant Life Church located at 130 Atlantic Avenue in Bremen, Georgia. If you guys are ready for the Word, you can get your Bibles out. You can get them open. We're going to be in James chapter 1. James chapter 1 starting in verse 22. James 1, 22. And this is what it says. It says, but don't just listen to God's word. You must do what it says. Otherwise, you're only fooling yourselves. No, you're not fooling anybody. You're not fooling God. You're only fooling yourselves. For if you listen to the word and don't obey, it is like glancing your face in the mirror. You see yourself, you walk away, and then you forget what you look like. But if you look carefully into the perfect law that sets you free, and if you do what it says... And don't forget what you heard, then God will bless you for doing it. God will bless you for doing it. Now, if you've been a Christian, if you've been in the church for any length of time, I apologize. You have probably heard a sermon from this passage of Scripture 511 times. And I'm sorry to tell you today it's about to be 511 and 1, because this is what we're doing. That's my qualifier for if you've been a Christian for any length of time. If you've known me for any length of time, you probably have heard me say that James is my favorite book of the Bible. So again, I'm sorry if that's repetitive for you, but James is my favorite book of the Bible for three specific reasons, and I'm going to share them with you now. Reason one, James was written by the real life, true, actual, factual half-brother of Jesus. The half-brother of Jesus who, might I add, did not believe for much of his life in the lordship of his half-brother, Jesus Christ. And in fact, misunderstood and misrepresented his ministry. There's an account in the book of John in which Jesus' brothers say, no one who does this does it in private. You need to be out there doing it for the people. They misunderstood the point. They said, go and go and go and do it. Yeah, they were encouraging him, go and do it, but for the wrong reasons. And it says, for at that time, Jesus' brothers did not yet believe. And yet, years later, he comes to a full belief in Jesus and is one of only five groups of people or specific people to pay witness to the risen Christ. He came to believe, and for me... That is a message of hope. That's one of the reasons that I love the book of James. It's a message of hope. If you have a wayward son, a wayward daughter, sibling, whatever it is, spouse, there is hope. It's not too late. They, too, can come into belief. So it's it's a message of hope. That's reason number one. Reason number two, this sounds silly and not at all theological, but he's a great writer. James is a great writer. He tells you in the first 27 verses what his book is about and then spends four chapters expounding on it. He lays out the thesis and then he builds the argument and he builds the case. It's extremely compelling and I love the way that he does that. However, unlike other New Testament authors, James has no valediction in his letter. When you get to the end of chapter 5, he doesn't say, peace be with you. He doesn't say, go forth and do it. He says, now you've got it, you know, put it into practice. It just ends. So maybe he's not a good writer, but he tells you what he's doing and then goes and does it. And then the third thing, the third thing that I love about the book of James is it's about works and action as evidence of our faith. 
Notice I said evidence of, not the ticket to entry for, right? Salvation is a free gift that only comes through the sacrifice and the blood of Jesus Christ. Works will never get you there. But once you are saved, works must follow. Jesus himself said you can tell a tree by the fruit that it bears. And if it doesn't bear fruit, it gets chopped down and thrown away. We have to do something with the word. And so James lists out in his, in his letter, he lists out some very simple ways that we can put our faith into practice. You know, things like taming our tongues. Super easy. Like not making any plans until we first check with God. Super easy, right? He says, don't go anywhere. Don't say, I'm going to go here or do this without first ensuring that the Lord wills it. Really easy, right? I don't think so. Uh, Enduring suffering. Patiently and pleasingly enduring suffering. Not so easy. But these are the things that he says categorize and characterize a believer. And he says it throughout all five chapters. He doesn't pull any punches. He doesn't shy away from it. He says, okay, yes, go, get saved, seek the Lord, and then once you do, you have to have an active faith. Like 12-year-old Jesus, we have to be about our Father's business. We've got to put it into practice. But how do we do that? How do we do that? As much as we would want to, it doesn't happen overnight. As much as we would want to just be saved and jump right into it, it's not that easy. It happens through a process. It happens through a process. But look, we need to ensure that we're doing the work of God. Because he says, show me your faith without works, and I'll show you a faith that's dead. And in fact, in that last verse that we just read, chapter 25, I want to hone in on it for a second. We're going to do a little word study. Does anyone in here know Greek? No, I don't either, so that's okay. We're going to do a little word study together. And in the Greek, when we look at this Uh, Peyton, if you could put verse 25 back up on the screen. He says, um, but if you look carefully into the perfect law that sets you free, then there's an and if you do what it says and don't forget what you heard, then God will bless you for doing it. And so the Greek word look right here actually literally means to stoop down, to contort your body. To bend intently over a text. Essentially, he's saying that you need to get as close as you possibly can. Do whatever it takes to get as close as you can to the text. Now, I am five foot seven inches. Any other short people in the house or watching online, I got you. I don't know if you guys have ever tried to be on the outside of like a crowd of something that's happening, but you will like bob and weave and tangle and contort your way so that you can see the action of what's going on. And that's what James is saying here. Do whatever it takes to get as close as you possibly can to the word. And then he says the next two things. He says, uh, do what it says and don't forget. That's a, a phrase of continue to do in the Greek. And what it means is to abide or stay near while making, doing, performing, obeying, or fulfilling the law. And so what this verse is saying, the central verse of our topic this morning is saying that we need to get as close as we can to, stay as long as we can with, and do as much as we can for God. And we could pack it up and we could go home there. But again, it's not as easy as we would hope. We've got to put our faith into practice, and it takes a process. 
It takes a process. And what that is, the process in its entirety, is called practical theology. Practical theology. Theology, belief, faith, that is practiced. Well, how do you get to that knowledge? Well, here's a fun fact. It's called a practical joke because it's a joke you do and not a joke you say. Practical theology is a faith you do and not a faith you just profess. And so it happens through a process that starts with our heads, goes to our hearts, and eventually ends up embodying our hands, the things that we do. And so I want to look at it today because we can't just believe something. We can't just know something. We've got to act on it. I think we can all agree on that as a baseline. And it starts in our heads. It starts with the head. It begins with what we know. The things that we know about the world, the things that we know about God and His Word, the things we learn about ourselves, that's the jumping off point. All the information and influence of the world around us is processed in our minds, and because we're primitive creatures, though we have access to unbounded ends of information, we are still very primitive creatures, and every piece of information that we take in is processed. We do something called confirmation bias, in which we look for something that confirms a previous belief. Imagine you're... I've, I've said this before, I'm the king of weird metaphors, but imagine, if you will, that every piece of information, every thought you ever come into contact with, every new piece of news or juicy gossip or fun facts you pick up is like a piece of paper. And in your mind, you have folders that you file that piece of paper into, folders that maybe are thoughts about myself or things I know about cats or whatever. And then you put them into uh, filing cabinets. And the filing cabinets are all categorized. And every piece of information you do or that you come into contact with goes through this process. It's happening a hundred times a day, more than that. Uh, it happens all the time, and so we process this information. At any moment, we can come into information that makes us smile. Like I learned the other day that sea otters have a favorite rock. They use a favorite rock to open up mussels and mollusks, and they keep it in a special pouch on their body and they use it their entire lives. Now, if that's not precious, I don't know what is. <laughs> sea otters are God's gift to man. I love it. But as much as we can learn great things, cool, awesome things about the world around us, we can also come into contact. Experts say we come into contact, on average, 500 unwanted and unintentional negative thoughts every single day. So it's important that we as Christians safeguard our minds and ensure that we're filing away the useful information, like that sea otter fact, and quickly shredding anything negative. The Bible says take every thought captive to Christ. We can't give that a place in our filing cabinet because, again, confirmation bias will lead us to believe over time that that is true. We can't give it the time of day. And in fact, this constant influx of information, I know I'm getting real high, high level here, but this constant influx of information is actually the reason why most of us are sitting in church today. Because imagine this, perhaps when you were growing up, this is true of me, you sat in church with your family, or you went to kids' church, or you attended vacation Bible school, and you started picking up the breadcrumbs of stories about people and places, piecing together your folder on Jesus, or your filing cabinet on the Bible. And then one day, something clicked, something happened, you made a decision to enter into a relationship with Jesus, and now you're here today. 
So again, this is happening all the time. It's happening in the spiritual, it's happening in the secular, it's happening for the positive, it's happening for the negative, it's happening when we intend it and when we seek it, and it's happening even when we don't. But the goal is to make connections to such that it goes deeper. And I actually saw this happen the other day with my children. Uh, they are taking a new exploratory at school called Worldwide Lab, and I love it. I've never been because I'm a 31-year-old man, and it would be weird to go to an elementary school and sit in the class, but it's the only class they talk about. And parents out there, you know what I'm saying. How was school? Good. What'd you learn? Something. That's all I ever get. But if I talk about Worldwide Lab, they go on for days. What did you learn in Worldwide Lab this week? Oh, we're learning about France. Did you know that France, that France is a home of the Eiffel Tower? And the Eiffel Tower is thus many feet tall, and it has 2,562 lights. And there's a guy that paints it every year, the same guy. He paints it every year, and it's actually a gradient color, and it gets darker as it goes higher up, and it has this many stairs, but it has an elevator you can take. Oh, and Dad, do you know how they say hello in French? Bonjour. Yeah, my five-year-old's walking around. Bonjour, bonjour, bonjour. It's like that scene from Beauty and the Beast. Bonjour. And they're so, they're just so up with France. They know everything about it. And then they learn about the seven wonders of the world. So they're learning all this stuff. Well, rewind to a year ago. And I don't know what you guys did when you were bored at home, but we bought and borrowed many books. That was one of our family activities. We'd play games, we'd put together puzzles, and we got a ton of books. And one of the books that we happened to get was about a little French snail named Escargot. You can already see where this is going. Uh, throughout the book, he's talking about the things he wants to eat, and he says at one point in one of the pages, I hope you won't eat me, ha, 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 laugh, laugh, laugh. She didn't know what he was talking about. Lo and behold, we're in the car rider line the other day, and she says, Dad, do you know that sometimes in France, people eat snail, and they call it, insert mispronounced word here, to which I, as a loving dad, corrected and said, no, that's called escargot. And I was paying attention like a good little driver and not looking back, but she grew silent for a second. I didn't see the exact expression on her face when it clicked, but she went silent and all of a sudden said, just like the snail in the book? Yes, just like the snail in the book. She made a connection. Something became more real. And so that's the same for us. Now, I don't want to be a Debbie Downer, but again, I can't overstate enough the impact of negative thoughts on our lives. We've been talking about it a lot in the Covenant Life Book Club. We're going through a book by Craig Groeschel called Winning the War in Your Mind, and it's been an incredible experience. But I want to remind you again, this can happen with negative thoughts and ideas too. If we spend enough time listening to bad, I'm using finger quotes, bad music, or watching bad movies, or spending time with bad people, it will influence us. There is no way around it. It is the truth. The Bible says very plainly, bad company corrupts good character. It will find its way in. You will file it away somewhere, and sometime later, you will, you'll pick it back up. And you'll say, oh, let me read that paper again. Let me open up this folder again. For me, I'm just going to bear my soul. For me, and I know we've talked about this in book club, a lot of my stuff has to do with feelings of rejection, of feeling hurt by people. And so every little thing that happens, if I'm not careful, becomes a mounting stack of evidence that I truly am rejected, that people really don't like me. And we've got to get to the place where we stop that. 
and fix our minds on that whatsoever list, right? Whatever is pure and true and knowledgeable. There is so much information, and we don't do a lot with it. And I want to state to you some facts that are going to blow your mind about the amount of information that we take in each and every day. I already hit you with the 500 unintentional negative thoughts. Each of those, on average, is about 14 seconds, which means that two hours a day, on average, you're dealing with negative thoughts that you didn't intend to think. You ready for more brain busters? Buckminster Fuller, what a name, was a futurist and an inventor. And in 1982, he wrote a paper called The Knowledge Doubling Curve. And he purported to have figured out how quickly human access to information would double over the foreseeable future. He looked back and he said that in the year 1900, the access to human information, all of the collective knowledge we have, was doubling every 100 years. It took an entire century for the knowledge that we had access to to double. By the end of World War II in 1945, that had been cut to a fraction at 25 years. Every 25 years, human knowledge was doubling. In 1982, when Fuller wrote this paper or came up with this theory, knowledge was doubling every 12 to 13 months. He predicted that by the year 2020, and IBM agrees, that human knowledge would double every 12 hours. In the span of 120 years, from 100 years to 12 hours. That means by the time it's midnight tonight, all of the access of information that we have, or all the information that we have access to will have doubled. It's an insanely high amount of information that we have at our fingertips. And so three years later, that was in 1982, three years later, another cultural commentator named Neil Postman wrote a book called Amusing Ourselves to Death. This was in 1985. It's become the seminal work on news and entertainment on our well-being, and it's not pretty. Hence the title, Amusing Ourselves to Death. He said that there is an extremely low, and again, this was 36 years ago, extremely low information to application ratio. He said, essentially, we are being bombarded, bombarded with so much information that we don't know what to do with it. It's society-wide analysis paralysis. That is why, this is, this is the answer, it's clear-cut, it's very simple. This is why anxiety and depression are at an all-time high, especially for young adults, people under the age of 18. Why? Because it's a problem that in 1985 didn't include smartphones, Facebook, a 24-hour news cycle. Need I go on? It has not gotten easier. It has not gotten better. In fact, I dare say the problem has gotten much, 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 much worse. And so what are we doing? Because I'll tell you the truth, church, if we as a society have a low information to application ratio, that is the antithesis of what we just read in the book of James and the very things that Jesus told us to do. It cannot be for the church. It shouldn't be for the world at large, but it cannot be for the church. Why? Because Jesus said three words at the beginning of his ministry that he then repeated at the end of his ministry, come follow me. He said it when he called the first disciples and he said it at the end of his life, come follow me, do what I do. Has anyone ever played a game of follow the leader? Is it just like ambling behind the person? No, it's doing what they do. If the leader jumps, you jump. If the leader spins, you spin. If the leader slaps a tree for no reason, well, you better slap a tree for no reason. That's the game. Jesus said, come and follow me. We're not just ambling behind him saying, cool, Jesus, I'm watching you. No, we're doing what he did. 
Pastor John talked some years ago. He said, the Dead Sea is called the Dead Sea because it has a lot of inlets and no outlets. And that means that the salinity is so high, it doesn't drain anywhere. So the content of salt can't support life. And I dare say that that's true of us today. Jesus wrote about us losing our saltiness. But church, if we're being honest, I think it's that we've gotten too salty. We spend so much time fixated on the two hours that we may spend in church every week and ignore the other 110 waking hours with which we're to do something with what we've learned. We need to have more action. We don't need another church built in a community of 16 churches already. We need more churches actually doing the work to further the kingdom. Because here's the, here's the rub. If the other 16 churches were doing it, we wouldn't need another church built. That would never cross our mind. It has been said, I'm just hitting you with so much today. It has been said that if every Christian would give faithfully according to instructions in the word of God, we can end world hunger. The church collectively could turn the tide of so many socioeconomic issues and stem the tide of mass raging poverty. If we would only do what we're supposed to do. I do not think that the church, the modern American church, has an information problem. I think, and I think that you'd agree, that it has an application problem. We need to do what we have been told to do. And again, it happens through a process. It starts by what we know in the head, and it continues from there. Step two in the process is it progresses from our head, and it goes to the heart. It then moves to the heart. It becomes a belief. There's two key types of belief. One is an initial belief. For the sake of today, we'll call that belief. Go figure. Something that you know to be true enough that you actually believe it. And then there's a sustaining belief. This is called trust in the Bible. A sustaining belief. Something that has been proven to be true. And so I will continue to believe it. I will place my trust in it. All of these things happen in the heart. If you don't believe me, let me show you in three quick verses that let you know that this belief and trust only happens once information goes from our head to our heart. Romans 10.9. This is instructions on how you're saved. If you openly declare that Jesus is Lord, if you know it and say it, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's step two. Belief. Proverbs 3, verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not depend on your own understanding. It happens in the heart. Third one for you right quick. Psalm 28, 7. The Lord is my strength and shield. I trust him with all my heart. He helps me and my heart is filled with joy. I burst out in songs of thanksgiving. Our head knowledge has to translate into heart knowledge. And again, if I can pick up the previous example, again, perhaps you sat in church with your parents or you attended kids' church or you went to VBS and you had all of this head knowledge and then one day some stimulus happened. Usually head knowledge becomes heart knowledge through some internal prompting or external experience. In the act of salvation, it's usually both. So you sat there and you had all of these files and, and folders full of information and someone, maybe a, a pastor, a parent, a friend, a teacher gave the invitation. That was the external prompting. And that was met with 
the Holy Spirit saying, hey, this is real, this is happening, this is for you, whatever that conversion experience was for you, the internal prompting that ultimately led you to go to the altar or say a prayer or sign a card or whatever that experience was. Again, it's head knowledge becoming heart knowledge. It's the means by which we enter into relationship with Jesus. That's what happens. And this happens over and over and over again in the Bible. So many of these interactions with people of learning about God, hearing about God, and then making a decision as a result, usually the key phrase to look for is one that says, what must I do? And so there's one notable experience that I want to share with you, but you can find it littered throughout Scripture, the question of what must I do? And it comes out of Acts chapter 31. Acts, or pardon me, not 31. Acts chapter 16, verse 31. There we go. Um, and so in this account, we've just come into the middle of something very exciting. Paul and Silas have been jailed. They are in their jail cell, and it says that they have been praying through the night. They've been singing hymns, and the other prisoners have been listening. And it says that all at once, all the doors in the jail house swing open, and all the chains of all the prisoners fall off. It's an incredibly miraculous event. The jailer wakes up in the midst of this noise and cacophony, and he says, where have all the prisoners gone? He thinks he's about to lose his job, and he starts to kill himself. And, and Paul quickly says, no, 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 everyone's still here, everything's okay. And he is so amazed at what has happened that he asks the question, what must I do to be saved? And the answer is, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, along with everyone in your household. He had probably... I mean, if you're in a jailhouse with someone, I imagine you can't just ignore it, heard their prayers, heard their songs, knew why they were in jail, had possibly heard them preach in the cities, and eventually that head knowledge translated to heart knowledge, and he said, what must I do? And so they give him the answer, and I want to clarify this right quick. You see at the end it says, you, along with everyone in your household, real quick, we're going to clear the air, we're not saved because grandma was saved. Okay? I think we just need to know, like he's not saying, okay, if you believe, then everyone you ever know and come into contact with, they believe too. No, the following verse says they went to his house, they preached the good news to him and his household, and then it says they all believed. They were so convinced, it was less of a, hey, everyone gets in, and they were so convinced that the good news would be real and alive to them that all in his household would come to believe. And so they go, they all believe, and they're building on this head knowledge. Hebrews 11.6, we won't put it on the screens, but it says that without faith, it's impossible to please God. Because, why? Anyone who seeks him must believe that he exists. It's not enough to just know God. It's not enough to just have a head full of knowledge about all the things we've picked up in our lives. It cannot stay there. After believing in God, after entering into belief of Him, we then begin to make daily decisions that allow us to trust Him. Knowing leads to believing, which leads to trusting. And then trusting gets us one step closer to actually putting it into practice. I'm going to give it to you this way. If you're a note taker, this is for you. Knowing is about possibility. It can happen. Believing is about plausibility. It's likely to happen. Trusting is about reliability. It has happened over and over and over and over again. That's when you enter trust, when you've seen God show up and show out so many times that you can't help but trust Him, that you know that He says He'll do. 
or he'll do what he says he'll do. Think of a romantic relationship. I know that my wife loves me because she tells me. I believe that she loves me because, well, she married me. And we're having kids together. We've got a family. But how do I trust that she loves me? Because of the daily decisions that contribute to the relationship. Because we laugh together, and we go places together, and we play games together, and we have fun together, and we raise our kids together, and by golly, when we disagree, we talk it out together. The daily decisions lead us to an understanding and a mutual trust that we love one another. How do you know that you trust someone? Because they do what they say they'll do. And it's no different than with God. We know that we can trust God because he does what he says he'll do. Well, how do we know what God says he'll do? Through his word. Through his word. To ensure that our head knowledge is becoming heart knowledge, we have to study the Bible with focus and intent. It can't just be something we peruse. It's got to be something that we fixate and focus on. The bird says to meditate on it. So we need to study it. We need to be in his presence and we need to ask questions of God and ask questions of the scripture like, what do you want to say to me? What does the scripture mean and what does it mean to me personally? I said this the other night in book club and maybe you've been here before, but when you say something and you're just so shocked by what you've said, it comes out of your mouth and you're like, I didn't even think about that before, but God, you're super awesome and that'll preach. Well, I said something like that. I I, I turned to the group and I said, the deeper we get in God's word, the deeper God's word gets in us. And it's true. If all we ever have is a skin-deep interaction, a skin-deep knowledge of the word of God, it doesn't go anywhere. That's all it will ever be. We won't know it when we need it, and we won't be able to trust God because we won't actually identify it when he does what he says he'll do. We've got to be able to know the word of God so that we can come into a daily trust of God. This idea is repeated through Scripture, but to me there's no better verse that illustrates it than one at the end of Job's life. Because it's with a heavy heart that I have to tell you that studying the Word of God is not the only way that we come to trust in God. Dealing with difficulties and trials and tribulations is another path through which we come to trust God. And for Job, it was a little bit of both. And so Job, in, in, in verse, uh, pardon me, chapter 42, verse 5, it's the very end. It's only like 11 verses until the end of the book after this. This is what he has sort of summarized his life to be. He said, I had only heard about you before, but now I have seen you with my own eyes. I only had head knowledge, but as a result of what I've been through, and I've seen your faithfulness, and I know that it's been your will as I've walked through these difficulties. Now I know you. Now I believe you. Now I've heard you. Now it's deeper. It's this idea of, okay, he, we know he was a righteous man because that's the whole premise of the book of Job. We know that he knew and obeyed scripture. But he'd only, up to that point, had a cursory knowledge with God. And yet, walking this road, trusting God through a difficult season, far more difficult than I myself have ever been through, led him to a deeper belief in sustaining trust in God. 
And now I know what you're probably thinking, that if studying the Word of God and seeing suffering through to its inevitable end are the two ways that I can get to trust God, I'm sure we would all gladly choose option one. Well, I'll just spend more time in God's Word then. Don't put any suffering on me, please. But we know that that's inevitable. The Word says, you will have many troubles. In this world, you will have many troubles. Not you may, not you might, you will. But take heart, for I have overcome the world. We know that God is with us in the midst of the fire, in the midst of the valley, in the midst of the darkness, in the midst of the wilderness. He's with us. So what do we have to fear? Let's trust him. My senior quote in high school uh, was not by Jesus. I wasn't that cool. Uh, But it was by Ralph Waldo Emerson. And uh, it was this. I loved it then. I love it now. He said, All that I have seen teaches me to trust the Creator for all that I have not seen. And it's so poignant, and it's so beautiful, and it's so true. All that I've been through in my life points to the fact that God is good, and God is just, and God is merciful, and God is loving, and God is faithful, and He is with me. He has never let me fall. Yes, I've faltered. Yes, I've encountered difficulty, but He's been there every step of the way. Can you say the same? Can you say that all that you've seen and been through teaches you to trust the Creator for all that's yet to come? Has your head knowledge become heart knowledge? And if it has, great, but it doesn't end there because now we've got to move it to the hands. Practical theology, theology that we put into practice, has to translate to our hands. We trust Him, we believe in Him, we put it into practice. That's the next logical step. Not many people know this, but I actually have two degrees, two bachelor's degrees. When most of my peer group graduated from college and then decided that they were going to go to graduate school and get their master's degree, I said, no, I'm going to go to ministry school and get a bachelor's degree. I sort of started over, and so I actually have a degree in, go figure, practical theology. I have a degree in it, and I don't even get it right half the time. There's, it's okay. We're all in it together. There's learning. And I actually have another degree, as I alluded to, called Mass Communications, and I'm fortunate and blessed to be able to use that degree each and every day, but it wasn't always the case. Like you, possibly endured, when I graduated from college, I could not find a job. I sent writing samples and applications to all of the Christian magazines that I could come up with. Not one of them hired me. I then said, I know what I'll do. I'll try to write for the New York Times and the Washington Post. I was young. My head was full of fantasies. I thought I could do it. Uh, That didn't pan out. So then I said, okay, well, I'll go for the local paper. The local paper didn't hire me. I said, okay, I've exhausted all my options. I don't know what to do. And I went and worked retail for six months, which essentially made my degree a $10,000 piece of wall art. And it just sat there, and yes, I loved what I got to do. I loved the people that I got to work with. Um, It was an incredibly open atmosphere to the things of God. They would open each day with Bible study and prayer, and you could talk about God freely because it was a Christian-owned business. And oh my goodness, was it so incredible. But every day that I was there, the fact that my degree was going unused bothered me. I knew that there was more that I could be doing. And I was prompted by this thought, what good, really, is a degree if you don't use it? What good is a doctor's stethoscope if he never checks your heart? 
What good are a police officer's handcuffs if he never arrests a criminal? What good is the Bible if we never use it? If the Bible says it's a, or it's a sword, what good is it if we have, just keep it sheathed all the time and we don't put it into practice? We've got to put it into use. If we know that God is who He says He is, if we believe in Him, if we trust Him, we should have no problem doing the things that He's called us to do. And so are we hungry for more opportunities? Do we thirst and seek out opportunities to put it into practice? Or are we the kings and queens of excuses and put up roadblock after roadblock to actually doing the things that God would have us to do? The things that the New Testament authors that wrote about and the things that Jesus very plainly said. In John chapter 14, verse 15, this is what Jesus says. If you've got a Bible where the words of Jesus are in red, these letters are in red. If you love me, obey my commandments. Full stop, mic drop, that's it. If we love him, we'll do what he says. And if you don't believe Jesus, well, shame on you. But if you don't believe Jesus, Paul said it too. Philippians 4.9. And he covers all the bases here. I love this verse because he's like, I'm going to get you every which way. Keep putting into practice all you learned and received from me. So all you've learned, all you've received, everything you heard from me and saw me doing. Do all those things. Then the peace of God will be with you then the peace of God will be with you. So if we want to have peace, if we want to have peace about our lives and the decisions, we should be doing the things that Jesus said to do and the things that Paul, through his life and through his writings, have instructed us to do. We've got to put it into practice. But again, it takes work. It takes work. It's a process. It takes time. We've got to put in the effort. Um, I'm going to give you some practical things in just a moment that will allow you to put into practice your faith today. Are you ready? You ready for it? Look, and these aren't James things either. I joked earlier. That was a joke earlier when I said James's instructions were easy. They are not. That's like level 10. Let's start at level 1 and we'll work our way up. Because when uh, Jesus is about to ascend in the book of Acts, by the way, it's called Acts of the Apostles, not words of the Apostles, Acts, what they did. And so in chapter 1, right as Jesus is about to ascend, he says, you will be my witnesses. Where? In Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. It was a ripple effect. It started where they were and went outward. And it's like that with us. Start where you are. You've heard the expression, grow where you're planted. Start today. And I've got some ways you can do that. Our framework is the same. We're going to start within, we're going to look around, and we're going to look beyond. And I'm going to give you a laundry list. Write down any that sound cool to you, and let's start actually doing the work. Right? Can we agree on that, that it's time? Let's start doing it. So here's a laundry list of ways. We're going to start within. Practical theology starts with you. No one else can put your faith into practice. You realize that? You're the only one that can do it. It starts with you. And so, we've got to start within ourselves. First thing you need to do is confront the lies that you've believed about God, about the church, about yourself, about the people around you. Pastor John has said it before. People are not the obstacle, they're the opportunity. So whatever twisted view you may have of, your, of the world around you and your place in it, we've got to confront that and deal with it so that we can be effective for the kingdom. So let's confront the lies that we've believed. Take the negative tape out, put the positive tape in, and keep on trucking. 
So confront the lies. Then when you've confronted the lies, when you're saying, okay, I can fixate now. I can focus now. This is what I want you to do. I want you to pick a time and a place to study the Word of God. Pick a time. We're going to start there. Pick a time. For a lot of people, it's first thing when they wake up. Say, right when I get out of bed, I'm going to go right to this and I'm going to do it. For some people, it's when all the kids are out of the house doing soccer practice or whatever. Finally, I've got some peace and quiet. For some of you, it may be when the toddler takes a nap. Okay, I've got one hour to do all the things. Find the time that works best for you and plant your stake in the ground and say, this is the time. Pick a place. It needs to be a place that is set aside for the purpose of studying the Word of God. Maybe it's on your green, comfy couch with your little cozy blanket. Maybe it's outside on your back porch with your cup of coffee and the bird song. Whatever it is, pick your time, pick your place, and stick with it. And this is what I challenge you to do. I challenge you to spend 10 minutes a day, three days a week. It starts within. The ripple is small. They started in Jerusalem. We're starting right here. 10 minutes a day, three days a week to study the Word of God. And don't just read the Word of God. Remember, the deeper we get in it, the deeper it gets into us. It's not a magazine that we're perusing in the doctor's office. It is the living, breathing Word of God. Study it. Dig deep. How do you do that, Jordan? You ask questions. You say, God, what are you trying to say to me? What does this mean? Obsess over the words. Think about it. Give it some time. And then, once you've done your 10 minutes, three days a week, and you've got that on lock, up the time. Up the number of days. Go to five days a week. Go to seven days a week. Increase from 10 minutes to 30 to 60. Whatever that threshold is for you, keep pushing it. Keep taking that next step. Spend time in prayer. Go figure, right? We say, oh yeah, I know I should pray. Well, let me give you some practical steps. There's plenty of opportunities in every day to pray. Pray when you wake up. What I try to do is the second I open my eyes before my feet touch the floor, I try to pray. Because the second that my feet get going, I know I'm not going to stop. And by the way, when we're praying and when we're studying the Word of God, I'm just going to let you know, do not do it on your phone. Don't open version. don't open the uh, you know, Bible Gateway, whatever app you use, do not use your phone. Do not use the Internet. There was a study done some number of years ago that says that the average household has two and a half Bibles. I don't know where the half Bible comes from, but there's a Bible somewhere. And if not, go to the dollar store because they sell them there for a dollar. Get a real physical Bible and spend time reading it. Put the phone away. Because when you'll get distracted, this is the thing. Did you know that distractions beget distractions beget distractions? Email, work email for me is the biggest distraction. And it is a never-ending chain. Whoever sent the first work email has terrorized us all. Because when you send an email, someone replies to the email, someone replies to that email, and it's a never-ending cycle. So do not tend to the kids. Do not tend to the dogs. Do not tend to that work email until you have taken your time with God. Sorry, circling back, pray. Pray when you wake up. Pray when you go to bed. Pray every time you sit down for a meal. Even if it's fast food in the car when you're driving down the interstate, pray for the meal. Okay? Thank him for it, yeah. Look, when you're waiting, when you're driving is a perfect time. Look, for as fast pace as this world is, we still do a lot of waiting. There's traffic, there's lines, there's inconvenience, even at convenience stores. Use that time to pray. If you want to close your eyes, if you want to speak out loud, however you want to do it, that's fine. But take, the advantage, take advantage of the opportunities that are presented to you. Don't get to the end of the day and say, oh, man, I didn't have any time to pray. 
Or to start your day by saying, well, if I only had time to pray, then I guess I would. No, make time. Carve it out. It's there. Ask God three questions every day. These are the three questions that I challenge you to ask. Is there questions that he will answer? I know for a fact because I've seen it in my own life. Ask him, is there anything you want me to say today? Is there anything you want me to do today? Is there anyone you want me to bless today? Notice I put today at the end of each one of those. It is present. What is it you want me to do now? Ask him those three questions. He'll answer them. One time I was driving home from work in Douglasville and I said, God, what do you want me to do? And he prompted in my spirit, I want you to feed someone. And I said, there's no one to feed. I don't know what you're talking about. And I got off of the interstate on my exit and there was a man on the side of the road with a sign that said, food, please. And I said, okay. And then I said, well, what's the next step, God? And he said, I want you to invite him to church. So I got the man a meal. I had to do some crazy loops, some U-turns. Got the man a meal. I said, what do you want? Got him what he wanted. I took it back. I said, hey, I'd love to take you with me to church tonight. Now, granted, immediately upon leaving, I called my brother-in-law, who's like really strong, and I said, I need you with me tonight because I'm taking this dude to church. But I still said, hey, I want to take you with me to church tonight. And he said, yeah, I'll be here. Same spot, 6 o'clock. I went back, and he wasn't there. I don't know what events transpired. Maybe it was just an act of uh, a test of faithfulness. Nonetheless, when you ask those questions of God, he will answer. But give him time to answer. What do you want me to say? Okay, didn't hear anything. Bye. No. Listen. Ask the questions and listen. And when you get an answer, follow through. Okay? Do it to the best of your ability even if it is a $2.50 cheeseburger from a fast food restaurant instead of a $50 steak dinner. Do your best to follow through. All right, so that's within. All that's just within. That's just you. Doesn't involve anybody else. That's just you. Now we're going to look around. Now we're going to zoom out. The ripple is going to get a little bit bigger. Think of the people that live with and around you. With you in your house and around you in your neighborhood or your sphere of influence. All right, first one, is going to maybe rub some people. Be kind to your spouse, your kids, your significant other, your roommate. Be kind. Love them like the word says to love them. Selflessly, recklessly, passionately, love them. Look for opportunities to help people in your sphere of influence. Look at your neighbors. Look at your coworkers. Look at your friends. Look at your extended family. Look for, look for strangers. Look for opportunities. No one goes through life the same way you do every day. Everyone has their routine. We all got our rut. We've all got our path. No one encounters the same people. You know, you could kind of do things by rote sometimes. And you're like, I know that at 3 o'clock Bob's going to walk in, and at 422, this is like, sometimes it's like clockwork. No one lives that way but you. So take advantage of every opportunity. I, I was stricken by this thought. How many churches that are in neighborhoods where there are houses have ever crossed the street? Let that sink in for a second. How many people from how many churches have ever crossed the street? How many of you have ever gone to your neighbor's house and had a genuine conversation? It's not like the 50s. In the 50s, it was, hey, neighbor, how's it going? Oh, nice car. Did you have a good day? Da-da-da. And I know that's, like, fictionalized on TV, but I know it to be true also. Like, it was, hey, how are you doing? And family barbecues, and can I borrow a cup of sugar? It is not like that today. 
It is I'm going to drive my car to my house, get out, go inside my door, lock it, shut it, and not talk to anybody. Because we don't need that because we have an access to so many other things and so many other ways to get human interaction. But cross the street. Knock on the door. When you're out and about, have genuine, human, courteous interactions with the people around you. When you leave here today, talk to the cashier at the store. How was your day? How are you? It's not that hard. Talk to the server at the restaurant. Talk to the barista who's making your coffee at Starbucks. Have an interaction. Ask them how you can pray for them. And when they give you an answer, if they give you an answer, do it. Even right there on the spot. Because I know I'm guilty of saying, I'll pray for you, and then I go about my life. I know I'm guilty of getting to the place where I'm going, and instantly, I don't have it on me, but instantly pulling out that phone and getting sucked into a world and not having any genuine human interaction with the people that are around us, people who need the love of Jesus just as much as we do. If you're not out and about, and you're on social media at home, bless somebody. Give unwarranted encouragement. Because I guarantee us at some point in our lives, we've all been guilty of giving unwarranted advice. And unwarranted encouragement is a whole lot better. Hey, love these photos. You and your family are great. Just want you to know I'm thinking about you. Hey, praying for you in the big game this weekend. It takes five seconds. But it could change someone's day or life. Find ways to meet needs and meet them to the best of your ability. My prayer for a long time has been, God, do not let me overlook the needs of the people around me. If I know of a need, I want to do something about it, even if it's as simple as making a connection. Even if I don't have the resources at that moment in time, I still want to make the connection to say, okay, so-and-so needs a job. I happen to know people who hire for jobs. Let me make a connection. Meet a need when you see it. That's the around. Now we're going to look beyond. Beyond. Last section here. Pray for people who are far away from you. Pray for them. I'm going to give you a list, some examples. Write down whatever sounds cool to you. World leaders, government officials, business owners, actors and entertainers, military personnel, first responders, teachers, Teachers. Teachers. After last year, teachers. Missionaries. Ministers. Christian leaders. Authors and apologists. Pray for them with intentionality. I don't even know if that's a word, but be intentional about the way that you pray for them. Look at this. Ready? Pray for those you know, and more importantly, those you don't. Pray for those with whom you agree, and more importantly, with those you don't. If Christians only ever pray for other Christians, what good does it do? If we only ever pray for the people in our own political party or religious affiliation, what good does it do? If we look at the magazine on the rack at the newsstand and say, oh man, what's Taylor Swift doing now? Gosh. And we don't take time to actually pray for Taylor Swift, as silly as I know that sounds... 
we're doing a disservice to the kingdom and what we as Christians have been called to do. Operation World is an organization that has a specific prayer calendar. Every day of the year, they pray for a specific country around the world. And the issues, not just a general, hey, I'm praying for Nepal today. No, it is specific to what they're going through right now. Whatever geopolitical issues they're dealing with, they pray specifically for them. If that sounds cool to you, get the calendar. Go to the website. Pray for a different country every day. If it sounds even cooler to you to go to a different country, do that. That's the beyond. Go. Go on a mission trip. Give of your time and your talents to the kingdom. Consider volunteering with a, a local nonprofit. Spend time at the soup kitchen or the food bank. You know, Carrollton has a lot of those little free pantries. Go to the dollar store, rack up on some goods and fill them up. Consider supporting a missionary with regular, recurring financial gifts. Consider supporting a worthwhile, responsible, fiscally right nonprofit organization with something like Amazon Smile. It doesn't cost you anything extra, but if you're shopping on Amazon, select a nonprofit to support and they'll get a portion of whatever you buy. That's how you do the beyond, thinking beyond yourself. And not just geographically, but generationally. Because Here's what we fail to realize, and what I've failed to realize for far too long, and my kids are relatively young, is that the, sow, the seeds that we sow today are seeds that future generations are going to reap. What investments are we making beyond ourselves? So I've just given you a huge list. There are countless ways to be the hands and feet of Jesus. There are countless ways to put our faith into practice. And the good news about spreading the good news is that most of the things I just told you do not take a lot of time, they do not take a lot of money, and they do not take a lot of effort. And yet we still don't do them. Why? For me, and I hope for you today, enough is enough. If Jesus said, if you love me, obey my commandments, then Jesus, I love you and I want to. It starts today. Corey, would you come? So we focused on the within, the around, the beyond. I want to give you a fourth tip, and it won't be on the screen, but I want you to hear my heart. Be gracious with yourself. Some of the things that we talked about, things like reading the Bible, studying it with intent and focus, and praying for people around the world, they're called spiritual disciplines because they take discipline. Paul said, put your faith into practice, and it's exactly that. It's practice. You are not going to get it right every time. You're going to have off days. You're going to have bad weeks. But when you fall off the bike, get back on it. Dust yourself off and keep going. If we throw in the towel just because we miss the mark sometime, will we ever pick it back up? Because I don't know about you, but I've known too many people who have just said, hey, I can't quite get this Christian thing right. Maybe it's not for me. And it breaks my heart because we've sold them a gospel that says that you got to give everything you own and move to the other side of the country. 
We've sold them a gospel that says the second that you say, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm pursuing salvation with Jesus, everything in life is going to be easy. And it's simply not true. So when you mess up, keep going. This is a weird aside, but I feel like sharing it. Prior to the end of last year, I had a three-year streak on my fitness pal. Yes, the exercise and calorie tracking app. That means that I logged my food and my weight every single day for three years. Why? Because I love data and I'm a weirdo. I did it every day for three years, and then at the end of last year, my family encountered a tragedy, and I didn't think about it. There were other places where I needed to be and other things that needed my attention. And when I finally realized what, has happened, what had happened, I didn't curse the app. I didn't shake my fist at God and say, my streak was so good. I just said, all right, I'm going to start logging again. And now my streak is like 10 because I've since not cared. Because there are more important things. And when we encounter difficulty, it's just as simple as starting again. And a good recentering for you is exactly what Robbie had us do this morning. Thank you, Jesus. When you miss the mark, when you're feeling like you're scrambling, when it's not coming together, stop and just say, thank you, Jesus, for this day, for this moment, because it's a new, fresh start right now. And when you flub it again 10 minutes later, because that's my life, stop again. Thank you, Jesus. Because as long as you have breath in your lungs, God's not done with you. Will you stand with me today, church? We're not going to have any sort of altar call this morning. This is less of a come and pray about it and more of a go and do it message. But I want to leave you with one bit of encouragement. Before I even knew I would be speaking this morning, God set me down at my table and said, I want you to study 1 Peter chapter 1. And I had no clue why. Like when you think of the books to study, 1 Peter isn't really high on the list. It's tucked toward the back. It's super short. Not many people know about it. But I was like, God, I'm going to do it. Because in my life, I've been characterized as either a, a crammer or a dabbler when it comes to reading the Word of God. I either know I've got a small group or a message to prepare for, and I'll cram like crazy to know everything I need to know right before I need to know it, which is not good. Kids, if you're in school, don't do that. That is not good. Study. Put in the work. Don't cram. Or I've been a dabbler. Or I just say, oh, what's God want to say about this? What is the Bible like? Does anyone ever Google, what does the Bible say about blank? It's dabbling. It's skin deep. Oh, I'm just curious. And so I've been trying to be more intentional. I shared with you, I don't get it right every time. This is me as 31. I've been saved since I was 8. Really, probably since I was 16 or 17. And I'm still trying to figure it out. But I'm trying to be intentional and say, God, I want to study your word. I want to crave your word. And man, it has revolutionized the way that I think and the way that I feel. And so I sat down at my table and he said, 1 Peter chapter 1. And I said, yes, God. And I ended up studying it for more than an hour. One chapter of scripture for more than an hour. And I said, what do you want me to get from this? I said, well, maybe you want me to, this is my mind. Maybe you want me to teach on it for small group. I'm flipping back through my notes. Nope, did that last year. Okay, that's not the reason. Why? And then the dominoes started to fall and the pieces aligned that brought me here to this altar this morning. And I went back and I looked at 1 Peter for inspiration, for confirmation, 
and I saw something very, very cool. And I'm not going to point it out, but I just want you to pay attention and see if you pick up the head, the heart, and the hands. And if nothing else, this is sort of the proclamation, the encouragement to go out and start doing it because we have an incredible reason why. And so if you look at 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 18, this is what it says. It says, For you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors. And it was not paid with mere gold or silver, which lose their value. It was the precious... Did I skip a verse? No, I don't think so. It was not paid, which lose their value. It was the precious blood of Christ. The sinless, spotless Lamb of God. God chose him as your ransom long before the world began. Insert parenthetical. Long before any sin you would ever commit, any breath you would ever take, any opportunity you would ever flub, God chose Christ as your ransom. But now in these last days, he's been revealed for your sake. Through Christ... You have come to trust in God and you have placed your faith and hope in God because he raised Christ from the dead and gave him great glory. You were cleansed from your sins when you obeyed the truth, so now you must show sincere love to each other as brothers and sisters. Love each other deeply with all your heart. Why? This is it. For you have been born again but not to a life that will quickly end. Your new life will last forever because it comes from the eternal living word of God. Why is having practical theology so important? Because Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe, right? And we now have a life that will never end. There is no greater reason to start doing the things of God We literally have nothing to lose. Will you start putting your faith into practice today? Let's pray together one last time and we'll be dismissed. God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for the opportunity to be in your house and in your presence today. God, we thank you for this word and the conviction to do what you've called us to do. God, I pray for those who know you, that they would believe in you. For those who believe in you, God, that they would trust you. And for those who trust you, God, that they would begin to do what it is that's in front of them. That they'd have the faith, the courage, the conviction to take the next step. God, lead us and guide us, give us opportunities. And even before the opportunities, God, give us a hunger for opportunity to show the world your love, to be your hands, to be your feet, to show your heart. God, we know that you are gracious with us, much more gracious than we are with ourselves. And so I pray too, that as we put these things into practice today, that you would allow us to go easy on ourselves. And that when we miss the mark, when we miss an opportunity, when we don't do exactly just as you said, when delayed obedience becomes disobedience, God, that we would recenter, we would breathe, we would slow down, and we would simply say thank you. Thank you 
It's been the resounding theme today in the midst of our storms, in the midst of our trials, in the midst of the situations we may face. We say thank you. Bless us as we go. Give us ample opportunity and allow us to take each opportunity to the fullest. We thank you and we praise you for all things. And it's in Christ's holy, wondrous, and precious name. Amen. We pray that you have been blessed and inspired by today's Covenant Living broadcast. To find out more information about our ministry, just visit our website at www.covenantlifewestga.org. You can find this video there on our homepage. Just click the YouTube button and make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel. Give us a call at 770-537-3747. That's 770-537-3747. At Covenant Life, our mission is to go and make disciples by being real, relational, and reaching. Be sure to join us next week for more Covenant Living with Pastor John Butler.